Can I ask you this morning to please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you would, please. It's great to be in your church. I've looked forward to this for several months. Uh, Pastor and I talked about this quite some time ago, and I'm thrilled to see you this morning. Good crowd this morning. Praise the Lord. This, uh, in the midst of our COVID pan- pandemic, is that what they call it? Uh, strange times here in America, but praise the Lord. I'm glad you're here. God's been very good to us here in America. And um, I remember when your pastor was in school, I remember him being a, a humble, uh, diligent student and a hard worker. And, and I'm glad that the Lord's using he and his wife here with you now uh, in, in, this, in this church. Did I talk long enough for you to find 1 Samuel chapter 14? Did you, did you get there? I'm going to give you just a little bit of a background of what's happening in the story uh, before we read the verse that we're going to read in just a moment. The Bible includes, among many other things, it includes a history of the nation of Israel. And the first king that the nation of Israel ever had was a king by the name of Saul. When Saul had been the king for about two years, he chose 3,000 men to go on a mission with him. He actually took 2,000 of the 3,000 men and went to a place called Michmash. While he was in Michmash, his son, Jonathan, who was second in command in the army, took the other 1,000 men and went to a place called Gibeah. While Jonathan and his 1,000 men were in Gibeah, the enemy, the Philistines, came into the land of Israel and actually set up a fort inside the land of Israel in a place called Geba. Well, Jonathan and his 1,000 men were not going to just stand by and let the enemy come in and set up a fort. So they left Gibeah and went down to Geba and they attacked the enemy and defeated the enemy. So the enemy, the Philistines, left the land of Israel, went back to the land of the Philistines. Well, Saul, the king, wanted the entire nation to know about this great victory they had had. So he sent out what they called trumpeters. Back then, they didn't have newspapers or radio, you know, to get news out. And so if the king wanted to get word out about something, he would send out these trumpeters. They would go to the village, they'd go from village to village. They would blow their trumpet. Everybody would stop what they were doing, come to the middle of the village, and they would read this announcement from the king. Well, it took several days, maybe a few weeks, for the news of this great victory to spread all across the land of Israel. While the news of the great victory was spreading across the land of Israel, the news of the great defeat was spreading across the land of the Philistines. So the Philistines began to gather an army because they were going to come back and they were going to retaliate against the Israelites. The Bible said the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. Now, I don't know how many men was in each chariot, whether it was one or two or six or eight. I don't know, but they had at least one in every chariot. Now, remember, Saul and Jonathan had 3,000 men. Well, now the enemy's got... 30,000 mounted soldiers in iron chariots. Well, the Bible said they also had 6,000 horsemen. We might call them cavalry. So now they've got 36,000 mounted soldiers. Well, those mounted soldiers had to have support forces. The Bible calls them footmen. We might call them infantry. And so the Bible said the footmen were more than you could number 
No more than you could number the grains of sand on the seashore. Now remember, Saul and Jonathan had 3,000. Now you've got an army of more than you can number. Well, when Saul and his 2,000 men in Michmash heard that the enemy was coming and heard how many there were, some of his men began to go AWOL. They deserted. The Bible said some hid in the caves, some hid in the bushes, the thickets, uh, some hid in the pits. And, and, and so Saul decided he was going to take what he had left and go down to Gibeah where his son Jonathan was, and he was going to combine their forces. And so he did. When he got there, he combined the forces, and he counted to see how many they had left. Between Saul and Jonathan, they had a total of 600 left. Now remember, the enemy's got more than you can number, no more than you can number the grains of sand on the seashore. So when the enemy, the Philistines, with their huge army, showed up at Michmash, of course they figured out Saul wasn't there anymore, so they set up their camp in Michmash. Then the, uh, the enemy, the Philistines, sent out three groups that the Bible calls spoilers. That's a military term that refers to a group of men who have been specially trained to attack. Uh, we might call them commandos. And the Bible said that one group came from Michmash down to Gibeah from this direction. And one group came from that direction. And one group came from this direction. So now Saul and Jonathan and their 600 men are sort of semi-circle surrounded by the enemy. So Saul decides he better check with his uh, men to see how many weapons they have ready to fight. So he checks with his 600 men and he finds out they have two weapons. Not two weapons per man, two weapons. Saul has a sword, Jonathan has a sword, and nobody else in the Israeli army had a sword, a spear, a bow and arrow, a battle axe, a shield, a buckler. They had nothing with which to fight. Well, there was only one way to get out of Gibeah. There was a pass that went up through the mountains behind Gibeah, and the enemy figured out that that was the only way to get out of Gibeah. So they sent out a fourth group that the Bible calls a garrison. Uh, that's another military term that refers to a group of men who have been specially trained to defend a certain spot. So the garrison goes around behind Gibeah, and they set up their, the Bible calls it a garrison, but we might call it a roadblock. Now the enemy has them completely surrounded, and the Bible says that Saul is in the uttermost part of Gibeah, underneath the shade of a pomegranate tree. You know what he's doing. He's discouraged. He's getting as far away from the enemy as possible with all of his soldiers between him and the enemies. At the enemy. And right there is where we pick up the story. So if you'll look at chapter 14, and I'm going to read verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Let's pray. Father, we sure love you and thank you for the wonderful privilege to be here with God's people in God's house, on God's day, with God's book in our hand. And we pray that God's Spirit, Holy Spirit, you'll be here with us. And I pray that you will touch every heart, 
You'll meet every need. Take this uh, uh, simple little message and apply it to every person's uh, uh, individual situation and help them this morning. Please do what I cannot do. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible said that Jonathan went on to say to the young man that was bearing his armor, Come with me and you and I are going to go to the enemy camp and we're going to show ourselves to the enemy. And if the enemy says, you stay there, we're coming to where you are, that's a sign that God's not in my idea. And so I don't know about you, but I'm out of here. He said, but if the enemy says, come up here to where we are, then that's a sign that God is in my idea. And guess what? You and I, just the two of us, we're going into the enemy camp. The Bible said at the edge of the camp in Gibeah, there was a sharp rock, or we might call it a steep rock or a cliff. And the Bible said that across the valley where the enemy was in Michmash, there was another sharp rock or cliff. So Jonathan and his armor bearer leave the camp in Gibeah. They go across the valley. They come to the bottom of the cliff and they just stand there right out in the broad daylight, right out in the wide open, and just stand there for a few moments. And it wasn't long. Two of the enemy soldiers came to the edge of the cliff. They looked down and they saw Jonathan and his armor bearer down there. And one of the enemy soldiers shouts down and says, Come up here and we'll show you a thing. You remember when you were a little kid on the playground at school and somebody smarted off to you and you said, come over here, buddy, and I'll show you a thing or two? You didn't know you were quoting the Bible, did you? But that's exactly what they said. They said, come up here and we'll show you a thing. And the Bible said the rock was so sharp or steep that they had to climb up on their hands and feet. And when they got to the top of the rock, the Bible uses the phrase a half acre. They said it was a clearing there of about a half acre, about the size of your front lawn out here. And in that half acre, there were 20 enemy soldiers. Well, Jonathan took his sword and began to fight with a couple of those soldiers. And apparently he wounded one, maybe killed the other one. Then he started fighting with a couple of more. And, and his armor bearer apparently picked up the dead man's sword and finished off the wounded guy. And by that time, Jonathan had wounded a couple of more and the armor bearer finished them off. And the first thing you know, between Jonathan and his armor bearer, they killed all 20 of the enemy soldiers. Well, word got back to the camp in Michmash. There's a couple of maniacs out there and they're killing everybody. Well, the Bible said that when the enemy heard that, they began to tremble. Now, remember, there were more of them than you could number. No more than you could number the grains of sand on the seashore. And when that many men began to tremble, the Bible said the ground began to quake. Have you ever been standing next to a railroad track when a train came by going kind of slow and you could literally feel the ground quaking. One time uh, several years ago, my family and I went on vacation. We went out west. We we had been to Yellowstone and a couple places like that. And we were on our way back and somebody told us that the largest herd of buffalo left in America was at a place called Custer State Park. It's up in the Black Hills up in South Dakota. It's a big park, 17,000 acres. And so we stopped there and got us a cabin and we stayed three nights because we wanted to see this herd of buffalo. But you know, for three days I drove all over Custer State Park. I drove out across the prairie. I drove up the side of the mountain. I drove around the back side of the mountain. And I couldn't find those buffalo. And I kept thinking... Where do you hide 450 buffalo? 
And finally, on the third day, I came around this curve, and when I did, there they were. I guess all 450 of them. They were in this little ravine over here on the left. And uh, one of them was about as close as from me to about the, the, the PA booth back there. So I, I stopped the van. I threw it in park. I reached over the back seat and I grabbed my camcorder. Remember those big old camcorders you used to put on your shoulder? And, and I, I grabbed that out and I opened the door and I stepped out and I started filming this one buffalo. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this is really neat. You know, I live back, I call it the east in Chicago. And, and, and I, I live back east and here I am in the west and I'm filming a real live buffalo and I'm wearing my cowboy boots and wearing my cowboy hat while I'm doing it. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really neat. And about that time, something brown went right through the lens of my camera. I thought, what was that? So I turned my camera this way, and here's one buffalo that all of a sudden he decided there was something on that side of the road that he liked better than what was on this side of the road. So now I'm filming a real live buffalo running across the prairie, mountains in the background, still wearing my cowboy hat, thinking, wow, this is the coolest thing's ever happened. And about that time I began to hear this rumble off to my left. And real quick, that rumble became a roar. In fact, it was so loud, the only thing I could hear above that roar was this sweet little voice saying, Get in the van! Get in the van! And I'm thinking to myself, no way, uh, this is too cool, I'm filming this. And so I did. I filmed the whole thing, all 449 buffalo decided at the exact same moment that that guy knows something we don't know. And so they take off across the road. And the only problem was my van and me were between them and the other side of the road. And they came right at my van and they split and went right around both sides of the van. I mean, just like an old John Wayne movie. Well, I never saw one, but Brother Richard told me about it. And these buffalo went right past my van, and when they did, the ground was quaking underneath my feet. Now, I don't know if the buffalo were making it quake, or I was making it quake, but the ground was quaking. And that's exactly what those watchmen in the camp in Gibeah felt. And when they felt the ground quaking, the Bible said they went out to the edge of the camp and they looked across the valley and they could see the top of the uh, rock on the other side of the valley over there. And the Bible uses the phrase that the enemy were melting away. That's the phrase the Bible uses, like a wave going back into the ocean. And it said, as they went on, they went on beating down one another. It was a stampede. They were trampling each other. And so the watchmen run back to the center of the camp. They tell Saul what's happening. He jumps up, grabs his sword, says, Come with me, guys. They take off across the valley. Uh, the enemy had dropped their weapons as they were trampling each other. So Saul's men began to pick up the enemy's weapons and started killing the enemy. And some of the men that had gone to AWOL from Michmash had actually joined the Philistine army. <laughs> And when they saw the Israelis winning the battle, they turned around and rejoined the Israeli army and began to help kill the enemy. And word spread quickly that this was happening. So those hiding in the caves and the bushes and so forth, they came back, they rejoined the army. And in one day's time, God gave the entire nation of Israel a great victory over their enemy because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. And one man believed that. His name was Jonathan. And that one man got somebody else to go with him. And when I say Jonathan 
believed that. I don't mean to kind of believe like he was sitting in the camp and he was saying, I know there's a God in heaven and I know He's in charge and I know He can do anything He wants to. So if God wants to give us a victory, He'll give us one while I sit here and do nothing. We'll see what God wants to do. No, that's not the kind of belief Jonathan had. You remember what James said? James said, show me thy faith by without thy works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Jonathan believed the kind of belief that, hey, there is a God. I know He could give us the victory. I don't know if He will or not, but He may give us the victory. So I'm going to go do something and see what God wants to do about it. Several years ago, many years ago now, there was a pastor in the country of Wales over by England. And this pastor had been the pastor of a little rural church for about a year. And the deacons came to him one day and they said, Pastor, we'll admit to you, we don't even know for sure if we ought to be doing this. (laughs) But we're going to ask you, would you at least pray about the possibility of maybe resigning our church? Because you've been our pastor for a whole year now and we haven't had one single person saved. And the pastor very humbly said, well, fellas, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure I should at least be willing to pray about it. He said, because you're right, I've been here a whole year. We haven't had any. He said, well, except for wee little Bobby Moffat. That's the phrase the pastor used. Wee little Bobby Moffat was the only person saved in that church that year. Little 10-year-old Bobby Moffat. Bobby Moffat, he grew up to be a missionary in Africa. He spent his entire adult life on the continent of Africa. And near the end of his life, Bobby Moffat said that he felt that his life had been somewhat of a failure because he had been there all of his adult life and only a handful of people had gotten saved. So Bobby Moffat said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to England just before I die and I'll recruit some other people and I'll get all of them to go to Africa and if each one of them will have at least a handful of people get saved, maybe my life will account for something after all. So Bobby Moffat goes back to England. He begins preaching a series of meetings. He preaches almost every night for a solid year. He started in London, made a tour of the United Kingdom, and about a year later he was back in London preaching what became one of his last meetings. And that night his adult daughter and her husband were in the service. About halfway through the service, she leans over to her husband and says, I kind of feel sorry for Daddy, don't you? And he said, yeah, I do. And a few moments later, she leans over again and says, why don't you and I go to Africa and take Daddy's place? And he says, well, I guess I will if you will. And that night, David Livingston the greatest missionary that's ever lived in the history of mankind, surrendered to go to Africa. Because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. In 1933, there was a pastor in a little town in southern Indiana, a little town called Princeton. At that time, there were about 7,000 people in the town. And this pastor had a burden that he wanted everybody in his town to know the gospel. But he knew he was not the kind of pastor that would ever get 7,000 people to come to church. In fact, he figured he would probably never even get every each person to come one time each. So one day he sat down at his desk, and as simply as he knew how, he just wrote out the plan of salvation. He took that to a typist, and he asked her to type it. 
he took that to a printer and he asked him to print 2,000 copies because he figured there were about 2,000 houses in his town at the time. And so the, the printer said, well, by the time I cut the template and uh, get the ink flowing, are any of you willing to admit you're old enough to remember those old printing machines where you had to cut a template and get the ink flowing? You didn't just push a button. And, and the printer said, by the time I do all that, he said, I can run 10,000 copies just as easy as I can run 2,000. And he said, it'll cost you less than a dollar more. So let me go ahead and run 10,000 copies. And the pastor said, no, that's okay. Uh, I, I, I'll never need more than 2,000. Let's just run 2,000. So they did. They ran 2,000 copies of his little plan that he wrote out. And he put one on the door of every house in his town. And he had about 200 copies left over. But what Dr. Ford Porter never dreamed of was that that little plan he wrote out would become known as God's simple plan of salvation, the most famous track in the world today that has been translated into 112 different languages that we know of. Over 602 million copies of this track have been printed on the printing presses at the Ford Porter Track Ministry in Princeton, Indiana. And who knows how many more copies have been printed on other printing presses all around the world, but we do know millions have been saved. Because there is no restraint with the Lord. The saved by many or by few. Your pastor mentioned a few minutes ago that one of my jobs used to be to work with uh, one of the bus ministries. And uh, in that bus ministry, as he mentioned, we would sometimes have a special Sunday where we would bring as many as 10,000 people to church. On one of those special weekends when we were trying to reach a goal of 10,000, we were out on Saturday uh, knocking on doors, inviting people, and one of our lady workers by the name of Eileen was up on the north side of Chicago, and she met a little boy by the name of Victorio Robles. Victorio was eight years of age. He had just moved there from Mexico. He didn't speak any English. (laughs) She didn't speak but just a little Spanish. But somehow she got through to him, explained what she wanted, went and talked to his mother. His mother gave permission for him to come. Victorio rode the bus on Sunday morning, and he walked the aisle in our Spanish junior church and got saved that morning. By the time Victorio graduated from high school, he had been called to preach. So he wanted to go to Hiles Anderson College and be a preacher boy, just where your pastor went, where I went to college and still work there today. But the problem was, back then, Howes Anderson College didn't have all the legal papers to accept foreign students into our school at that time. And Victorio didn't have all the legal papers to be in America. And so we had to work out the situation. We raised some money, and we helped Victorio get back to Mexico. And because in Monterey, Mexico, there is a Bible college that's uh, where our missionary Tommy Ashcraft is there. Some of you know of him. And so Victorio went to college there. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of lost track of Victorio. Until about three or four years ago, I was in Mexico City. And I was preaching for one of our graduates. We have a graduate named Kevin Wynn who pastors in Mexico City. His church averages uh, over 10,000 on Sunday morning. Every Sunday year-round, he has anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people in his church. And he runs 50 buses every week. In fact, he runs them three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And when I was there preaching, I found out that for the last 21 years, the bus director at Kevin Wynn's church has been Victorio Robles. 
Victoria Robles has been responsible for over 3 million people coming to church. And a little over 1 million of those people have walked an aisle in a public service and filled out a decision slip making a profession of faith in Christ. Because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. You know that's true of that family that you're rearing for Christ? That's true of those few talents that you have that you give to the Lord? That's true of those few skills that you have that you apply to the Lord's work? You know that's true of those few tracks that you pass out at work or on the bus or, 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 or when you eat lunch or when you go to the grocery store? You know that's true of those uh, few visitors that you get to come to church? You know that's true of those few people that you witness to? You know that's true of those few dollars that you put in the offering plate over and above your tithe? Do you know that's true of, uh, uh, of the few moments that you spend in prayer or the few moments that you spend reading your Bible every day? There is no restraint with the Lord. My former pastor, uh, Dr. Jack Hiles, uh, the, the man who started Hiles Anderson College, he was the pastor of our church, the First Baptist Church of Hammond, for 41 years. And often during those 41 years, we had several different years where we would average as many as 20,000 per Sunday on Sunday morning in our, in our Sunday schools. Uh, and, and, uh, that, uh, and Howes Anderson College now has over a 1,000 uh, men all around the world pastoring churches, not, not to count many, many others serving as assistant pastors and school teachers and Christian school teachers and so forth. But Dr. Jack Hiles grew up in a very poor neighborhood on the south side of Dallas, the Lisbon neighborhood, because his father was a severe alcoholic. In fact, he was such a severe alcoholic that he would often lose his job. And every time he lost his job, they would uh, lose their house or their place they were living, and they'd have to move again. Well, the Hiles used to laugh and say that uh, every time the rent came due, they had to move again. And by the time he was 18 years of age, they had lived in 17 different places, including a one-car garage with a dirt floor where they lived for six months at his uncle's house, the whole family in that garage. Well, I don't understand all the psyche involved here, but for some reason, when that little Jackie Boy Hiles was growing up and moving to all those locations, those addresses stuck in his brain. And I'm sure some of you here this morning in the past heard Dr. Howells preach a time or two in person or maybe on a tape or something. And you might remember that he would often give illustrations about his childhood in his sermons. And when he would give those illustrations, many times he would mention how old he was. He'd say, when I was 8 years old, such and such happened. Or when I was 12 years old, such and such happened. And occasionally he would not only mention his age, but he would mention one of those addresses where he had lived. And I have no idea why, but for some reason, I just got in the habit. Every time he mentioned an address of his childhood, I'd write it down. He not only eventually mentioned all 17 of those addresses, but he also mentioned the address of the grade school he attended, the junior high, the high school. He mentioned the address of the church where he was saved, the one where he was called to preach, and the one where he was married. He also mentioned the address of what he called where he got his first store-bought haircut at a barbershop. He also mentioned, one time he mentioned, the address of the restaurant where he and Mrs. Hiles had their first date. Well, after several years of writing down all these addresses, I went to him one day and I said, Brother Hiles, I've got this list. I showed it to him. 
of all these addresses that you've mentioned that relate to your childhood in Dallas. I said, I've got an idea. I want to have a contest. We had a contest every year at our church to see who could bring the most visitors and so forth. I said, but this year when we have the contest, I'm going to take the top 10 or maybe 15 captains. I had 155 bus routes at the time. And I said, I want to take the top 10 or 15 captains who bring the most visitors, and I want to take them to Dallas, and I want to show them all these addresses. I said, what I want to do is take them there when you're preaching in a conference, like I'm preaching here this week. He would do that every week somewhere. And I said, we'll hear you preach Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night. When you fly home Wednesday morning to preach at our church, I'll stay down there and show them all these addresses. I think it will be interesting to them. Well, he shocked me when he said, Ray, I'll beat that. I'll stay down there Wednesday morning and I'll show you those addresses. The only thing that shocked me more was when he got up in church the next Wednesday night and announced that God had given him an idea for a contest. <laughs> of course, he looked at me and grinned when he said it. And he said, uh, he, he little play on words, he said, we're going we're gonna to call it the trip of a lifetime. He said, we're going to go to Dallas and we're going to see my lifetime. He said, but this will be the trip of a lifetime. He said, if you want to go, you'll have to win the contest this year. He said, because we're going to do this trip one time. And we did do it one time, 14 times in a row. <laughs> because every time we did the trip, well, the house just loved doing it. And every time we did the trip, we always stopped our bus at this one intersection on Fernwood Avenue and Garcia uh, Street. And we'd get out of the bus and we'd go to the northeast corner and we'd stand in the front yard of this little two-bedroom yellow uh, wood frame house. And he would tell us several stories about things that happened to him during the time they lived in that house. Then we'd walk Caddy Corner across the street to the southwest corner, and there was a greenhouse over there. And every time he told the story, we'd be standing there on the edge of the street in front of that house. He would point back at that yellow house, and he would say, when we lost that house right over there, and he would point at this window, he would say, we rented that room, not that house, that room right there from the Johnson family. And then he would say, now you folks know, I've told you many, many times, that everywhere we lived, my mother always found a good church for us to go to, and she always made sure I went to Sunday school and church. He said, except, and you know, I never heard him tell this part of the story in a sermon, but on that trip he would tell it, he would say, except one time. For three months while we lived right there in that room, he said, we only had one hot pot, my mother only had one pan, she cooked all of our meals in that one pan, on that one hot pot, on the floor in the middle of the room. My mom and dad slept on a blanket on this side of the floor. My sister Earlene and me slept on a blanket on the floor on this side of the room. And he said, uh, when we were living there in that room, we quit going to church for about three months. He said, because my mother got to the point where she only owned one dress. And he said she got to the point where she just became embarrassed to wear that same dress to church every Sunday. Then he would point right over here and he would say, right there, my mother would build a big fire and she would boil a big black pot full of water. She would take two buckets of boiling water. She would go in that room. She would make Earlene and me play in the yard. She would pull the window shade down. She would wash that dress in a soapy bucket of hot water. She would rinse it in the other bucket. She would wring it out, hang it up, let it drip dry, put it back on, and it became so faded and tattered, she was embarrassed to wear it to church. And he said, we didn't go to church for three months 
until Mrs. Johnson figured out why they were not going to church. So Mrs. Johnson owned three dresses. And he said Mrs. Johnson gave one of her three dresses to his mother, to, to Mrs. Hiles. And Mrs. Hiles would save that hand-me-down dress that was better than the other one for Sundays. And every time he told the story, tears would start rolling down his cheeks. And he would lean out from the house and he would look down the street three blocks to the Fernwood Avenue Baptist Church. And he would point down there and he would say, two weeks after Mrs. Johnson gave my mother that dress, little 11-year-old Jackie Boy Hiles got saved on a Sunday night at the Fernwood Avenue Baptist Church. Can you imagine how many rewards in heaven Mrs. Johnson, not Jack Hiles, Mrs. Johnson is going to receive for one dress? Because there is no restraint with the Lord to save by many or by few. Could I have every head bowed and every eye closed? I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there anyone here this morning who would say in your own heart, just between you and God, I want God to increase my faith. I want God to, to give me the kind of faith that Jonathan had. Now, wait a minute. Before you make that decision, let me remind you. If you ask God to increase your faith, that doesn't mean you're just going to feel different when you leave this morning. That doesn't mean you're just going to be thinking differently than when you got here this morning. That means you're going to be willing to do something. You're going to be willing to get up and go do something and see what God will do with it. You know, I'm sure you're like me. You've come to church before and felt like, wow, that was a great message. God sure increased my faith this morning. But we don't really know for sure that God increased our faith until we pass out more tracts this week than we did last week. Till we put more in the offering next week than we did this week. Till we uh, pray more this week than we did last week. Till we uh, read our Bible more this week than we did last week. Till we uh, invite more visitors to church this week than we did. If God increases your faith, that means you're going to do more than you've done before. Or you're going to continue doing what you do longer than you thought you were. Who would say this morning, okay, Brother Young, with that understanding, I know what I'm asking I want God to increase my faith. Would you slip your hand up and let me pray with you this morning? Would you keep it up just for a moment? I want to pray for you. Thank you. You may put it back down. Who else would say quickly, you know, Brother Young, I didn't raise my hand that first time, but I probably should have. Would you include me in your prayer? Yes, I want God to increase my faith. Would you slip your hand up? Let me add you to my prayer. God bless you. God bless you. And you, and you, and you, and you there in the back, and there in the back, and here in the front. God bless you. Anybody else quickly? God bless you. I see that hand too. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. I see that one. Anyone else? Father, thank you for these that have raised their hands this morning. I pray that uh, everyone in this room who raised their hands and others who maybe should have, I pray that you will increase our faith. I pray that we'll be willing to take that faith, that gift that comes from God. We can't generate faith on our own. It's a gift that comes from God. But when you give it to us, I pray you'll help us to put it in the right place, to use it, go do something with it.